You are listening to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. everybody and welcome to the 14th episode of the coffeehouse classical music podcast my name is asa and i'm allison and you've been hearing the sweet sounds of wc's premier rhapsody and that is the piece that we're going to talk about today last episode we talked about eric satie and some impressionist music and we're going to continue in that vein this week with Debussy's premier Rhapsody. Now, Debussy, much like Satie, was born in a Paris suburb. His parents were, however, not musicians. They actually ran a china shop. However, young Debussy often got to visit his aunt in the country, and there he began to learn piano under Jean Ceruti, who had studied with Chopin. He began his formal study at the Paris Conservatory when he was 10 years old in 1872. And at this time, the Paris Conservatory was very conservative, but Debussy was already beginning to experiment with new harmonies that he would use extensively in his later works. He primarily studied piano for his first years there, but after many failed attempts to win virtuoso competitions put on by the conservatory, he turned his study more towards composition. And he was actually very successful in this field, and he won several competitions, including the Prix de Rome in 1883 for his cantata, The Gladiator, and in 1884 for L'Enfant Prodigé. And once he graduated from the conservatory, he moved to a very bohemian part of Paris and made friends with symbolist writers. And he even began to set some of their poems to music, this sort of wispy-sounding music that was the forerunner of his later style. In 1888, he traveled to Wagner's famous Beirut Theater and began to take himself on a very Germanic Wagnerian direction after falling in love with Wagner's style. However, after struggling to have his music really make any sense in this style, he abandoned that ideal instead for a more French sound, saying that his music, quote, needed to be flexible and adaptable to fantasies and dreams. In 1889, he went back to Paris and went to the Paris Universal Exhibition, where he encountered, for his first time, Javanese gamelan music. Now, gamelan music has a bell-like quality and a very exotic Asian feel because of extensive use of both percussive tonal instruments and the pentatonic scale. And this sound became one of the major contributions to Debussy's further compositions, including the famous prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. Through 
throughout all of these different styles, the Wagnerian style and the Gamelon style, we can start to see a Debussy sound that blends a lot of influences from different areas. By 1898, after quite a few subpar opera attempts, Debussy actually found a publisher who believed in him, George Hartman, who in addition to publishing his works when they were available, also paid Debussy a monthly stipend. And by the turn of the 20th century, Debussy became a music critic of sorts as a writer for La Revue Blanc. Here, he was able to disseminate his ideas about his view of the direction of music. Also around this time, in 1902, Debussy finally had his first successful opera run with Elias, which he had been working on for nearly 10 years. In 1903, the run of La Revue Blanc ended, and Debussy began writing for a new journal, Le Gaublat. Here, he continued to spout his ideas for a more French sound, almost getting to the point of nationalism. Also, his own musical style had fully matured and was often used as a model to compare his contemporaries' works to. And out of this period came his great orchestral masterpiece, La Mer, followed by a great many other works that depicted specific scenes. In 1909, contemporary Gabriel Fauré invited Debussy to join the board of the Paris Conservatory, an offer Debussy graciously accepted. And from this position, Debussy had even more influence over the direction of French music, as he could influence the students coming up through the system. And as we'll get into a bit later, it was from this period in Debussy's life that Premier Rhapsody was composed. In 1912, Debussy also got to try his hand at writing ballet music as he was commissioned to write for a ballet called Jeu, or translated to Games, that was to be performed by the infamous Ballet Russe. Now this work was performed just weeks before the legendary Rite of Spring by Stravinsky was premiered by the same company. And I feel like it probably got a better reception than the Rite of Spring. (laughs) Seen as Rite of Spring was met with revolt and people storming out of the theater. (laughs) (laughs) Now around this time, he also began to do a bit of traveling and performance tours as a means of getting some extra money to support his family. Now he spent these remaining years working mostly in chamber music settings before ultimately dying of cancer in 1918. Let's take a brief diversion to talk about the clarinet. Though the clarinet as we know it did not appear on the musical scene until the classical era. Perhaps the most famous early clarinet works were written by the prodigious and popular Mozart, and that is what really allowed the clarinet to be seen as a soloistic instrument. And when Debussy wrote this piece, it was for the clarinet examinations called Sola de Concours at the Paris Conservatory. In every music school around the world, there are at least yearly examinations to prove that a student is making progress on his or her instrument, and at this time at this Paris Conservatory, it was standard practice to have a single piece for each instrument to learn, and it was therefore also somewhat of a competition. They often had well-known composers of the time come in and write kind of like guest pieces. And this year, Debussy, uh, although he was still on the board, he wrote the Solo de Concours. So this piece was meant to be for students to perform, but WC didn't want it to just be 
an etude. He wanted it to be French, and he wanted it to be musical, but also made it sort of purposely challenging. Now, because of this, you get numerous moods and techniques within the piece in order to fully show a player's abilities in the span of less than 10 minutes. And we hear this from a quiet and mysterious beginning. To a more crazy and mischievous mood later in the piece. Now, speaking of this French-sounding music, a lot of French music, and also chamber music in general, has lots of small subtleties about it, like these little nuggets that might get passed up on the first listening. One such example is in this piece, when this little motif from the introduction is quietly morphed into a different key. This near to atonality of Debussy's writing, and thus all the accidentals that you see in the score, uh, caused this key change <laughs> to be effortless and uneventful. Another example is here, where the dynamic starts out as pianissimo, and then crescendos... ...to pianissimo. Now, mostly what Debussy is looking for here is a tone color change rather than really a dynamic change in order to give this gentle music some forward momentum. Now, a big part of chamber music in general, but also Debussy's French music, is that the small concert of instruments must work together. So, of course, Debussy wrote in some musical conversations between the piano and clarinet. In this section, we hear the piano playing some triplets that after every two or so notes that are repeated, they skip down in a sort of arpeggio, and this section is peaceful and flowing. However, in the clarinet's cadenza that Debussy writes, there are some insistent 16th notes that follow essentially the same repeating skipping pattern so it's kind of like the clarinet's response to the piano's earlier statement. And speaking of the piano, you definitely hear that Impressionist staple and Debussy's favorite pentatonic scale flowing up and down in this excerpt. Debussy was not one to outright throw form to the wayside, 
And so he gives us one final gem right at the ending of the piece. Now, going back to the very beginning, we heard this melody. And now, here at the very end, we hear this. It is the exact same melody, but it's completely changed its character by the end. Now, Allison, you and I are both clarinetists, and as such, we've played several solo de concours in our lifetime. Now, mm -hmm. I really like this particular solo de concours because though it was composed to be an examination, to be intentionally challenging, it's not like some of the other ones that sound show-offy, that really sort of put that intention on their sleeves, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's subtle, it's very, very musical, it's very French. And I love that. Well, really, W.C. wouldn't write anything unless it had his stamp of French approval. And so <laughs> I think when he was writing this, even though he knew it was for students to show their technical abilities, he really wanted it to have musical value as well. And that's why this piece has become a staple in the clarinet repertoire, even when it's just performed solo. It, it's just performed because it's so good. <laughs> And so that's everything that we have for you today on Claude Debussy's Premier Rhapsody. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Debussy's Premier Rhapsody was performed by Justin Matthias and Chuck Dillard. The prelude to An Afternoon of a Fawn was performed by the Columbia University Orchestra. La Mer was performed by the U.S. Air Force Band. The Sweet Bergamasque Movement 4 Pacified was performed by Jacob Salvatore. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes and Google Play. Like us on Facebook and remember to rate, review, and share with your friends.